Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Jeff Hansen, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. It's good to meet you. I've heard lots of good things. Likewise. And it has to be said, I think Jeremy's got a bit of a man crush because it has to be said, I think you might have the best job in the world, like managing director of Sea Shepherd Australia. Is it the best job in the world? Yeah, it's pretty close. I mean, I, <laughs> I get, I mean, I, the thing is, it's a bit of a journey. I mean, I didn't always do this and I was doing a job then kind of living a lie and it was, it was eating away at me. So mm. I think that is good thing in there that sometimes if you you know when it does get tough you realize what it's like to do a job without passion so mm. you know because it's not an easy gig <laughs> you know no at the same time it's hard to believe the places i've been and the people i've met and what we've been able to achieve achieve for the natural world you know can i ask what that job was you don't have to say specifically <laughs> the company but what were you doing so I mean, I grew up in West Heidelberg, opposite Darwin Creek, and my first love was dinosaurs, but I couldn't have them as pets, so that moved to reptiles. <laughs> so I had a room for me and a room for my reptiles with incubators with baby dragons hatching and blue tongues and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I always thought growing up that I'd be a wildlife vet specializing in reptiles or working in Africa, helping animals hurt from poachers. But for all the wrong reasons, I did a double degree in electronic engineering and computer science with honours in computer science. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'd started doing a bit of sport in year 10, discovered snow skiing and snowboarding and thought, oh, I just wanted to get a job where I earned good money so I had heaps of money to go and play, not really thinking about it too much. And, you know, I kind of thought my mindset is once you start something, you you finish it. So I finished my, my degrees and... Then I went and lived in, worked in America and lived in, in Germany. And every time I watched a nature documentary, I felt sick to the stomach because I felt that I just couldn't believe how I got my life so wrong. All the things that I loved and was passionate about doing as a kid and I wasn't doing any of it. And I thought I was too old to change. I mean, this is mm. going, this is going back in, you know, sort of 2000, 2003. And then I came over to WA. I was doing a, one of the Olympic distance tryouts for the you know, age group worlds over in Perth. And I thought, oh, this is a nice spot. I had a company that I was working for in Melbourne, Hanson Technologies and not my company, but I was doing tests. They asked me to come over to WA and do testing at a customer site. I met some guys over here that were training for the WA Ironman. I thought, oh, too far for me. I'll never do one of them. <laughs> but 
lo and behold, start training with these guys and ended up, you know, signing up for it. And then I was doing yoga once a week to try and keep everything in, in place. And I met a lady named Marina, her name means of the sea. And I was quite, yeah, content and happy living in WA and started to think about all the things that I loved doing as a kid and started watching nature documentaries again and went into a, an art class and realized I could still paint and sold a couple of pieces. And Marina at the time was like, how do you know all this stuff like watching all the nature docos? And I go, well, that's that's who I am. That's what I'm passionate about. Yeah, I was in Melbourne with my mum and we saw one of our ships, the Farley Mowat, parked there, one of Sea Shepherd ships. And I learned about the organisation and saw whales still being killed and I heard the words of Paul Watson saying, you know, this is a growing movement, the most important movement in the world that is to save life, to save the earth. It means we need to stand up and say, hey, we're going to take matters into our hands as caring, compassionate individuals and we're going to fight back because mm-hmm. if there's one thing worth fighting for on this planet, it's life. And so, you know, tears in my eyes and a knot in my stomach. And I said, that's it. I don't want any more Christmas presents or birthday presents. Just give money to uh, this organization. And, and I looked at Steve Irwin's life when he died as well. And I thought, mm. you know, he died at 44, which is young, but he led a full life. And mm. I thought, what's the point of living to be 100 and do something you hate? That's not a life. And so I met Paul Watson after coming back from Australia Zoo. He said he wanted to name one of one of our ships the Steveville. And I said, well, I've just come from there. I'll see what I can do. And before long, you know, had Paul and um, Terry talking. We had permission to name the ship Steveville. And then I took 10 days off my IT job and went across to Melbourne and helped get the Steveville and ready for campaign and watched it sail away without being on it and broke my heart. <laughs> on the third leg of that campaign, I got the opportunity to go down and I'd studied ice charts and weather weather patterns and, and I strongly believed that the whaling fleet were in a certain position and we were heading away from that position and I went in and I spoke to the first mate and then Paul Watson. I said, look, I don't care if you don't act in what I've got to say. I just need to get it off my chest because I felt like I was going to be sick. And they said, yep, makes sense, and we changed course. And I stood back and thought, shit, what have I done? What if I was wrong? Not too long after that, we had harpoon ships on the radar trying to take us away from our position sitting in the fog, really just acting as decoys. But then they asked me to plot a position for the factory whaling ship, the Nishimaru, and, yeah, within about eight hours of chasing this very large target on the radar, almost losing one of our engines, you know, I can remember the photographer taking a big zoom picture of this, you know, vessel coming in and out of the fog, which was the uh, stru- superstructure of the floating slaughterhouse in Ishimaru. And at that point, you know, whaling had been ended for that Antarctic summer. And so as we come up on the slipway of the Nishimaru, then second mate, Peter Hammerstead said, would you like to do us the honour of launching the Jolly Roger flag as they've come up from the Nishimaru. <laughs> so, they, must, they must put their pants when they see that. Like, <laughs> Well, it's great because it's – and I think that's been the biggest thing over the years is just the intimidation and yeah. perception of, of the organisation. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. Sometimes it works in our favour and sometimes it works against. Yeah, and on that story, and I've actually watched your TEDx talk about that Nissan Maru story, and and like I guess the decision that you made following your instincts and and telling Captain Paul, etc., it was hardly a consequence-free decision, wasn't it? So if you had have got it wrong, that essentially meant the death to hundreds of whales, and yeah. I guess that decision that you made to tell Paul essentially saved the lives of those hundreds of whales and obviously led to further wins in that sphere. And it just shows you, for me, and I've heard this quote before, when you live consistent with your own passions and your own values, the universe has a way of conspiring to support you, whatever that might be. And and clearly the universe is kind of conspiring to support you and the actions of Sea Shepherd Australia as well. 
Yeah, I think when you start dabbling in the right path, the energy just flows and it takes mm. off and you just think, oh, my God, this has just been a, a roller coaster ride. And on the way back to Melbourne, I went into Paul's cabin and I just wasn't thinking about it at the time, but I just said, look, this is how I think we could grow things for Sea Shepherd in Australia. And he said, oh, do you want to run it? And I was like, oh, well, that wasn't my <laughs> plan. <laughs> so... I then just, I basically ran it for two years as a volunteer while still working in IT until we could slowly build it up. So I feel quite lucky in that basically all the roles that we have now paid, I've done myself. So Mm. that comes a great deal of understanding and appreciation for everyone's role. And I think that's that's really important in in any Mm. organization, be that for-profit or not-for-profit. But yeah, the, the people you meet and the places you end up and you think, how did this happen, you know? Yeah, and it has to be said, we've had a lot of your volunteers on our podcast already. So uh, obviously, Lisa Dixon and Graham Lloyd, and look, look, they do an amazing job with basically very limited resources and and completely voluntarily. And it has, is inspiring. It really is, and and I guess it's sort of consistent with the theme of Sea Shepherd Australia. You do amazing work and have significant positive outcomes with very little resources. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. I mean. On one hand, we are probably a bit too lean because our staff team are very, very stretched. But I think the other side of that is, you know, people like Lisa and Graham that you mentioned are incredible volunteers that, that give so much. So we're accountable to them as well. We're accountable to our donors and supporters, you know, and I think that's where we may not have grown as fast as other NGOs and we don't have the big offices and that. I mean, I run, run the organization from a, donated office space in Fremantle, you know, a company called UDLA. They do urban design, landscape architectures. I met one of the directors and he said, yep, there's a free desk and off you go. That's cool. Yeah. And I think that keeps us really connected to our grassroots and and keeps us not with these big offices and and a big overhead. What I've always really been passionate about is that I don't like this idea of that a person is more important than anyone else. We're all equally important in achieving the outcomes and by that token very much like when we go and watch our footy teams or rugby teams play on the weekend we take ownership in the victories Mm. and so I'm, I'm really careful that I want the language to say that the victories that we achieve are as much our donors our supporters our volunteers as our crew on the front line and we should take ownership in those victories that that's your ship, the Bob Barker, the Ocean Warrior. These are your victories. And now more than ever, we need empowerment, you know, and I think that's what, what we need to bring. And our ultimate goal is that we don't need to exist one day, that people mm. understand the importance of the natural world. Keith, we haven't asked you, where about sea calling from? Are you in your office in Fremantle? I'm actually from I'm working from home today. So oh, yeah? Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm cool. In, uh, we, we never know because we, we you know, <laughs> with, the, with the whole COVID thing, anyone's anywhere and, and you go, oh, where are you? I'm, I'm actually in my garage. So Fremantle's now your home? Is that obviously where you've been for the last, what, 15, 18 years? Yeah, I first came over here and was living on the beach in Cottesloe. Then I met Marina and moved into Myeree and we bought the worst house in the best street in <laughs> 2010 and just been slowly chipping it away. And now we've got two kids, little girl, she's... 10 turning 11 in December and Bo, he's eight. So, yeah, that keeps us pretty busy. Yeah, calling from the Wajuk land of the Noongar Nation, very strong Aboriginal culture and that's another part of Sea Shepherd that 
that we're very proud to have had many campaigns where we've worked closely with, with First Australians and, and understood a little bit more about their connection to country, which is something else, you know, just the small things that I've seen and witnessed that it, it just blows your mind. Changing topics very quickly for a sec. You mentioned the Ironman WA that you competed in. I actually suspect that we might have crossed paths in Lycra before. So <laughs> I've done Ironman Busso uh, a few years ago. I- I'm not sure if it was the same year you did it in, but you mentioned the trying out for the world champs. I-, I suspect, again, I might have raced against you in that as well. Am I allowed to ask, uh, time-wise, Ironman Busso, what did you, what'd you punch-, punch that in? First one of it was 2005, and I think that was the first one, and it was – it, the night before was just thunder. Hello, Jeff, 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 tell us the time. Tell us the time. That's all uh, great. What's the day? Yeah, I'm interested in excuses, Jeff. Uh, uh, 11 hours 23 was the first one. Yeah. And, and then I enrolled to do Ironman Austria the following year. Uh, went over the handlebars two weeks before oh, the race nice. and fractured my radius head in uh, two places and my wrist. But managed a PB of 10 hours 55. Wow. I don't know how anyone can do an Ironman with a broken arm. So that is that is super impressive. So well, well done. Yeah, I, I remember I was a little bit quicker, Jeff, at Ironman, my man Basso, but uh, I did also end up in the, in the medical tent with two IVs in my oh. arm. So don't race like me is the short story. But um, yeah, that's well, great to hear. I've seen that you've uh, you place in your age group, which is mm. you know given these days the quality of the age group as compared to the pros, very quick. Yeah, I do okay. I, I'm amazed how quick guys are in their forties nowadays. I, I suspect there's uh, is a, there's some shenanigans going on, but uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy it. Oh, Brad, Brad, don't get away from <laughs> anyway. We don't want to talk about that. Look, and we sort of touched on, I guess, you've, you've tried every job in, in Sea Shepherd Australia, but it's not all smooth sailing, is it? Like, it's hard, Yakka, really. Like, we sort of have a two-minute talk about this great decision to save a bunch of whales, but it's not all smooth sailing, is it? I remember I've heard about some sort of story around is it Operation Masashi where you were trapped in pack ice in Antarctica. Can you give us a quick sort of a snippet of that story? Yeah, so we just chased the harpoon ship Yushin Maru number two. It had headed into some ice. And at the time, there was plenty of sea around. You know, we could get through there quite easily. But then the fog came in and the weather changed and we got caught in an area where we were going to go, let's sit it out here until the weather improves so we can make our way safely out of the ice because we couldn't launch the helicopter to get out. But the ice just kept coming in and in and in and, and closing in around us. And so we realized that, all right, we've got to do what we can and slowly, you know, get out of here. So we were kind of nudging our way through the ice and it took almost the best part of, you know, all day just, and everyone was up constantly watching. And at times I was on the stern of the Steve Irwin just giving the direction to the bridge how far away the ice was because sometimes we had to reverse back and go forward and reverse back and go forward. I also went in down into the bow of the Steve Irwin as well to just see how the hole was shaping up as well. And I think one of the one of the Animal Planet cameramen at the time who was filming in the bow put his camera down and says, "This is where my commitment ends." And uh, <laughs> where do you go when you the ice is all you know encroaching around you and you're stuck on a ship that's like a? We just had to keep pushing north to try and find a, a way out and the wow. weather improving and then we had clear passage and we could throw the helicopter up and, and get a bit more guidance on the best way out. But, yeah, mm. it was that's probably the only time I've 
generally being worried on, on the ship. It was a sigh of relief when, when we got out. But yeah, there's, there's a mix of other things, you know, that are, that it's tough where you're building up an organization and there isn't the people to do the work that just needs to be done and you can't not do it. Like if, you know, all hours, you know, sometimes a Christmas lunch, because we're down at Antarctica opposing Japanese whaling fleet, we often, we might find them on Christmas day or whatever. And you're here facilitating, you know, media releases and press conferences or getting up at three o'clock in the morning because of the time difference and going mm. in and doing a 30 second piece on sunrise or today show because you've can't say no, you've got to represent the crew that are down there on the front mm. line doing it tough. So, you know, time's away from family and, you know, extra pressure on, on Marina when he's here with the kids. So it's tough, but then you want to be able to look your kids in the eye and say that, you know, you did everything you could to try and secure a real future for them, you know. Mm. Well, that's a perfect segue into so doing everything you could. Something's not adding up. You're studying in electrical engineering and IT and, and all that stuff, and now you're directing boats <laughs> and being successful at it. And, you know, you're talking about the bow and the stern. So you've obviously spent a lot of time on boats. Can you, can you tell us about your transition from when, from when you were told that you were going to be the runner of, of Sea Shepherd Australia what have you done in that time? You, you've worn every hat. I mean, there must have been, hey, the office person, I'm now on the boat, so I'm on the land crew volunteering. Give us a synopsis of what's Jeff done in the last 20 years and from the start to finish if you can. Generally, I'm not a big planner in terms of outlying steps. I hate fine details and I generally think of an idea. I'm like, okay, let's just do it without thinking about it too much. I generally go with my gut and so... In short, my first time out to sea was straight down to Antarctica on the sea <laughs> with, with no experience whatsoever. And I just learned on the job. So I just threw myself into everything. I was helping out on the deck crew with the lines, bringing in the small boats. Then, you know, because of my electronics degree, we lost our GPS on one of the small boats and in the bridge. So I was able to fix that. I would help out with a helicopter and I was in the bridge as well. And you just. I just like to learn and I, you know, learn on the job. And that's, that's what I've done. And so initially I was given a title of Australian director. I'm like, I'm not a director. I have no experience <laughs> whatsoever, but I just have a deep love of the natural world and an understanding of its ecological importance. And through the words of Paul Watson as well, just made, you know, everything seem, well, this is exactly what I think that this is what's important in life and everything else is rubbish. And when you go down to Antarctica and you experience a place like that, an ancient world of ice with minkies and humpbacks and orcas storming through, and it's like, this is what's important. And nature's fine. It just needs to be left alone. And so mm. I would just pick up, learn on the job, like, you know, writing pieces. English was probably my worst subject at school. But when you, and I wasn't a public speaker, but when you do something you love, you just, you make it all happen. And I know there's lots of roles over the years that, you know, I'm also one of the six global directors with, you know, Peter Hammerstead and Paul Watson and Alex Knielsen and Lamia and Gert. I guess the thing is you, when you're so passionate about something, you do whatever it takes. But at the same time, I know that my strength is 100% campaigning. So if mm. I'm able to build a team where I can really focus more on campaigns, that's when I can deliver some really tangible outcomes and results. And I think that's been shown when, you know, Bob Brown and I both jumped in and, you know, helped out with the Kimberley campaign where we facilitated with other groups and Galara Blue people stopping the world's biggest gas hubs from going through the middle of the world's biggest humpback whale nursery mm. just north of Broome in uh, Walmodan or James Price Point. And then the WA Shark Coal appeared on our doorstep with former Premier Barnett. 
And so we jumped onto that and Mike and Lisa Dix, who you've had on the show, said, look, would a small boat help to go out and monitor fisheries? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And they purchased a small boat and they were out there every day monitoring fisheries or the contractor in the southwest, just bringing transparency to what was going on. And in three months, that shark call ended and it's no more. Mm. And then we loosely help out with different climate fights and then Lisa and my partner Marina started doing beach cleanups and then that evolved into the National Marine Debris Campaign, which involved tens of thousands of volunteers and supporters um, removing you know, millions and millions of marine debris from our coasts and, and cleanups in Morton Island, Ningaloo, Cocos Keeling Islands, Christmas Island. In fact, Marina's off next Friday to Cocos. And then proudly working with two big cleanups in northeast Arnhem Land, a place called Jilpan, working with Dimmeru Indigenous Rangers, cleaning up sacred country to the Yongle people and critical sea turtle nesting habitat. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then I work in the Great Australian Bight, which I met Peter Owen. He's the director of the Wilderness Society in South Australia. He was putting out the call to many NGOs for help because BP wanted to drill for oil in waters deeper, rougher and more remote than in the Gulf of Mexico. And they were granted leases to drill for oil in the Bight less than six months after the big blowout in the Gulf of Mexico, which took 87 days to cap the well there. And I said, well, Pete, see what we can do because Sea Shepherds, obviously, we're always struggling with capacity, but we're very selective on what campaigns we get involved in. We don't want to be jumping in on a, on a bandwagon. We'll only jump in if we can be of assistance. But all the other NGOs weren't coming and helping Pete. So we said, oh, well, we'll, we'll see what we can do and learn about the bite and sat down with Bunna Laurie, a Murning elder, a whale songman and a protector of the Great Australian Bite. And there was Pete, Bunna and myself. And we sat down and worked on the strategy on how we were going to stop BP. And one of those key points was to bring the Steve Irwin to the, the bite and a bit of a voyage of discovery on what is there in the bite and what's at stake. And Pete mentioned all these places, Noitz Reefs and Francis Isles, Pearson Island. I'd never heard of them and I couldn't even find images on these places. And so it was definitely a voyage of discovery. It was just remarkable that the bite is one of Australia's best kept secrets, a grand marine wilderness area, southern right wild nurseries, the Bundy Cliffs that go 80 to 100 metres vertical and stretch for 100 kilometres long. And then off there you've got Turquoise Ocean and southern right wild nurseries. 
You've got blue whales, you've got giant squid, you've got orcas, you've got great, great whites, mako sharks, long-nosed fur seals. And, you know, when you arrive at places like Pearson, which is 70 kilometers off the coast, the welcoming party is Australian endangered sea lions. And it gives you a taste. It's it's like being in the Galapagos. I'm, I'm lucky I've been to the Galapagos with documenting sea shepherds work there. And we've got it off our coast. And if there was an oil spill there, it would affect much of southern Australia. So... Yeah, in a very short time, we um, you know, managed to see BP pull out Chevron and Equinor and working with, you know, community and Indigenous and, and other groups like, you know, Surfrider were instrumental as well in that. But a really interesting, powerful story in that is that when speaking with Bunner, he told us about the story of Jedera, the white whale, this mythical whale that breathed life into the land and the sea across the Nullarbor and the Great Australian Bight. And all the marine life that go there, the blue whales, the humpbacks, the minke, they go there to honour the journey of the great white whale Jedera. And so I said to Bunner, would, would it be okay if we named our campaign Operation Jedera in, in honouring, you know, Jedera and, and you and the Murning? He said, absolutely. So we had a logo which was the Bunder Cliffs, the turquoise ocean, and Jedera, the white whale, the southern right whale. And I kid you not, we were at Header Bite and we were all there. We had our... Jedder top song with the logo and Bunner sat on the edge of the cliffs with his, you know, clapsticks and he was singing. And like he had said that he would go out and greet the whales and, and, and call them in. And that's what his people had done for thousands and thousands of years. And he sat on the cliff and sang and a mother came over and sat right in front of him. There was about 50, 60 mother and calf pairs at the time. Wow. You could see with the naked eye and a mother sat right in front of him with a white calf. Yeah, that is cool. I'm honestly sitting here with my hairs are up. It's so inspiring. Mm. It it is. I'm looking down. We're 44 minutes into this chat, and it feels like it's gone for five minutes. Um, (laughs) But I I want to take a couple of couple of nuggets. I want to go back to a couple of things. And you mentioned before in regards to other other NGOs, and it's sometimes hard politically for sea shepherds. I'll give you a, a bit in before I ask you this, but we've spent a lot of time lobbying. We've spent a lot of time trying to help non-for-profits. And I have had some people say to me, well, you've got to be careful with C-Shepherd because some politicians like them, some politicians don't. Mm. And at the time I thought, well, why is that? Why? It's because they're too aggressive. Can you, can you shed some light? Because I, I sort of, Picked up that little bit, and I thought that was something I wanted to ask you today. Do you guys lose funding because you're not, you're too aggressive? And then, and then how do you navigate that? And do you just suddenly mm. want to fuck off because we're doing the right thing? Really interested to hear, hear your thoughts, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, it's a mixed bag, you know, because sometimes that notion of being aggressive and, you know, a 30 second clip that the media shows, you know, with the Japanese mm. whaling fleet is showing our ships colliding into them, but they haven't shown the bit where they've been, you know, running prop fouls off, off ours and throwing concussion grenades at us, you know. So that sometimes works in our favour. For instance, when we met with BP and they were asking questions about when they were going to bring their oil rigs south, who would they contact, where their ships are going to be there, etc. And I just said, look, you know, we had no intentions, you know, it was that we had no ships in the vicinity, but we just said, look, you've seen what we do in the Southern Ocean and, you know, we like to keep our tactics very close to our chest. Mm. So sometimes it can work in your favour. But from a government perspective, I think that the whale defence campaigns, there's been a lot of pressure, and I know this directly after speaking to politicians, a lot of pressure on the Australian government 
for Sea Shepherd to not have support or have our DGR charity status in Australia, and that has come directly from Japan, a, a rich trading partner. Wow. And we also know that through WikiLeaks as well because we know that Japan lent on the US government as well to try and get the charity status taken away from Sea Shepherd in the United States. And we've also seen other things like, for instance, when our ship, the Addy Gill, was rammed and sunk by the Shonen Maru No. 2, the Japanese security vessel, there was a, an investigation done by New Zealand Maritime and AMSA, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, and the investigation came back inconclusive because Japan refused to cooperate with Australia's investigation. However, we know that a number of months after that, through Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, as soon as that incident occurred, the Australian government contacted the US Embassy and said, look, don't worry, regardless of any investigation, Japan will come away clean on this. Wow. Wow. And you can search that in the media. It's it's yeah, all yeah, out there. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. so we know that that's what it's been the case over the years. But there is also still a very right-wing mentality in both major parties that protecting the environment is not a good thing, that a real job is not in renewables, a real job is in coal and oil mm, and gas mm. and things like that. And so there's there is that notion as well. And they also believe that sometimes because we will have a press conference and we'll invite all political parties, but only the Greens will turn up, we're seen as to be, you know, political, which is not true. We've invited everyone that we, we can mm. to be a part of it. So there is all that notion as well. But I know that things have changed a lot. For instance, you know, when we went down to stop the Patagon Antarctic toothfish poaching, there was a legal tooth fishing company in Australia called Austral Fisheries. They have perceptions on us. We have perceptions mm. on them. I met the CEO, David Carter, and I said, look, people often have a perception of Sea Shepherd. When they meet us, that perception goes out the window. And he put his hand up and said, guilty as charged. And mm. we became, you know, built a really good friendship and, and still do. David's a cyclist, so that, that helps. <laughs> and then turned out that and with the thunder chase that, you know, that was 110-day chase of the illegal uh, vessel, the Thunder, that was wanted by Interpol. Mm. David had a vessel leaving Norway en route to Mauritius and that he then put also went out on a limb because, you know, we're seen to be, you know, radical by some some sectors and by commercial fishermen and, and, and governments. And he had that vessel join in the chase. So the Thunder vessel oh, woke up one morning and had two conservation ships and an industry ship sitting hot on the, on the heels. Now, since then, David has gone on to invite me to speak at two state liberal conferences here in WA. And when I first entered the room, David said, oh, I guess you're probably wondering what's, you know, what Sea Shepherd doing here. And there was a lot of liberal people going, well, yeah, what the, what <laughs> yeah. the hell? Who invited them? <laughs> but David spoke about his work with Austral and he spoke about the work that we're doing, spoke about the Thunder Chase and then how that has then led to our government partnership work in Africa and our eight government partnerships there where we provide the ships, the crew, the fuel, and our government partners provide the armed authority on our ships to make the arrest. Spoke about our, our cleanup work, which you know David and, and Austral funded our volunteers to go to Arnhem Land to do two big remote cleanups. And then that then brought down perceptions in the Liberal Party, which then meant that a number of times I went to Canberra and I can't mention, mention names mm -hmm. because these political people try and just 
work behind the scenes because they understand the, where things are, are still at in, in the Liberal Party and other parties. But since then, we've finally got our DGR charity status, which is something that I've been working on since 2007 and we only got it in 2020. So, you know, that was huge. And so there's, I love getting out and meeting people that have perceptions on us or think that, you know, we're too radical or too militant. And it's like, well, hang on. We're out there tackling illegal fishing. We're restoring the livelihoods of artisanal fishermen. We are providing information to Interpol. We have Interpol speaking highly of us. We're cleaning up the beaches around Australia and remote locations. We're working with Indigenous rangers. And then so when we have had some of those political people learn about the work we're doing, we're going, you guys are actually doing good work. And you're not Mm. just online with advocacy. When people donate, you can actually see the work and the outcomes. Mm. And to me, that's that's really great when you say, well, yeah, that's that's why we work so hard because and our volunteers work so hard because they can see that we're delivering results. We haven't caused an injury on either side. We haven't broken any laws and we're having some massive outcomes and we're achieving more in the last five years than we have in the last 35 plus years. I think a lot of people do have the perception probably from the early 80s, late 70s that Sea Shepherd Australia, what they do is they ram whaling ships. And look, for me, I think that's fantastic, but a lot of people wouldn't like that. But I guess fundamentally you are focusing over on the three key issues facing our oceans, one being climate change, another one being plastic pollution, another one being illegal fishing. But you are, you are highly effective on a number of different campaigns and there's a lot of direct action campaigns that means you guys are actually spread fairly thin. So as a, as a managing director, just for people who aren't aware, can you give an overview of, I guess, just the size of the organisation and particularly also how you guys are funded? You mentioned the charity status, but how do you guys get your money? Yeah, well, the money really is from grassroots. So we don't have a lot of big donors it's more just you know people out the volunteers shaking the tin selling merchandise people joining our monthly giving program is another big one so it's it's really lots of small donations that adds up sea shepherd australia has got currently 10 staff a mix of part-time and full-time staff yeah it's we operate on about four million dollars a year for sea shepherd australia that is that is amazing. Like knowing how effective you guys are, just from the cleanups. Like you guys are out there. I think every second or second weekend somewhere in Australia. I know Graham Lloyd's out there every third weekend, impersonally. That alone, and then you add on the illegal fishing activities. You know, you know the the boats, the staff, the resources, the fuel, and obviously the action around climate change. It does seem to be you guys are running on the smell of an oily rag, but achieving great results. So in terms of effective altruism, you know, if you want to donate to any organisation, for my mind, Sea Shepherd Australia is certainly, if not at the top of the list, but certainly near the top of the list. It's amazing. And to be honest, it's a credit to yourself, Jeff, as MD, but also the whole team and all the volunteers that give up so much of their time and energy into the various activities and causes. Yeah, I think that's, well, thanks a lot, but it's about $15, $20 million a year globally to to run, you know, that's what Mm. we currently, you know, bring in. Which is nothing when you think Mm. about how many ships have you got out there, (laughs) like, it just, that blows my mind. I mean, if you're a business, you guys will be making a lot of money because you're running everything on a smell of an oily rag and your profit margin, your your impact is so high. Jeez, you, you can teach the business world a few things. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but oh, that's the thing. When I have met with governments and explained the work we do and how we do it and how much, they're going, we could never do that. 
Mm, yeah. But at the same time, we know that we definitely need more money to build more support within the team because the staff that we do have are probably doing the work of four or five in other NGOs. And that, and that does definitely take its toll when there isn't that ability to, to have a break or to go on you know holiday and not think, okay, when I come back, it's just going to be bedlam or have to work when I'm on holiday. So we definitely need to work on finding a bit more of a, a balance there. I mean, it is, it is an exciting organization to be a part of. And you're right, the volunteers, they're up early or they're up the night, they're getting the car packed the night before, they're getting all the beach cleanup kit, you know, and Graham's getting it all sorted. They're going off and doing a cleanup and then the public just might just turn up and help. But then those volunteers and then to come home, get all the tubs and gloves mm. and everything and wash it all out. People are doing an event or a store or raising funds. There's so much work that goes on. Sometimes they're mm. up and it's still five o'clock in the morning, it's done. Mm. You know, this is what they choose to do because it's really that they're, they're connected by that, just that love of the natural world, but it's because we are effective and there's just that deep understanding of its ecological importance. And mm. I think, you know, when you hear Paul Watson's Spaceship Earth analogy, yeah, I love it that. just makes, it makes so much sense. And it's like, well, that's, <laughs> if everyone understood that at a, a government level, industry, you know, the average punter on the street, then we would actually start looking after this planet a lot more. Mm. Yeah, I love that analogy. I've heard you mention it in your speech that he asks a bunch of kids, you know, have you ever been on a spaceship? And they all look at each other and he goes, you're on run right now, hurtling through space. And, and you know, the crew, that's the oceans and the critters and the animals and, and humans, we're just passengers. But we're living beyond our limits and probably being probably annoying to the, to, to the whole spaceship. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.